This is the Manga Mavericks podcast from allcomic.com, episode 139. We are a podcast not only dedicated to talking about manga as a medium, but as an industry. I'm Colton. And I'm Lam Ramiyasha, and today we're beginning a month-long series of episodes that I have dubbed kind of loosely as LGBT Thanksgiving. Uh, this is basically a month of LGBTQ-related manga, mainly Yuri manga and LGBTQ manga, and interviews with people working on said manga. We've got some, a lot of great translators, and we got, you know, even a homegrown uh, creator making their own manga with LGBTQ protagonist themes. Uh, and it's basically just a collection of kind of podcasts that we've been recording, and a lot of these we had already released on our Patreon earlier this uh, summer, this year. And really, we just ended up kind of finagling the schedule to the point where you know, we collected a lot of, you know, LGBTQ-related topic episodes, and I thought, hey, we could, we have enough of these for a theme month, and so I thought, hey, this is a fun idea, let's, you know, I came up with the, the name LGBT Thanksgiving, that tickled me, and so I was like, yeah, let's, this is a good idea for a theme month. I, I really love all these podcasts that we did, these are some of uh, my favorite podcasts we've done this year. These are a lot of great interviews, especially with translators working in the industry, but also creators in the industry who, you know, are LGBTQ creators, like giving their perspective on great series. Uh, so I, I'm really excited for this series of episodes, and I hope you guys will enjoy them a lot too. And we're starting off with a really big one because we're going to be talking about Our Dreams at Dusk. Which is like one of the biggest, I think, LGBTQ titles uh, that has been brought over in the last, you know, couple of years by Seven Seas. They've really been trailblazing, you know, a lot of great titles. And yeah, we got to talk about it with the translator of the series, uh, Jocelyn Allen, who also translates a ton of great series like Kaze-san, which we're also going to be reviewing later this month, as well as Ryoko Keita's stuff, which are world so pivotal in LGBTQ manga history, like Ladine in Wizard of Versailles. And we got to talk with Jocelyn about her career history in manga, you know, her work in translation, and, you know, her start, like, translating uh, in the automobile industry in Japan, which was interesting. Oh, yeah. And her work as an interpreter, and it was a really great conversation about her thought process on translation, as well as her insights into our dream with us from her perspective as the translator. So it was a really great conversation, and just a wonderful series of series that you know touched me very deeply, and is just a really powerful read on you know a story about coming out and living your life as a queer person in a world that may not be accepting, but just finding found family and other people who share similar experiences and can empathize with you. And it's, it's just a really beautiful story. I'm really, really enjoyed our conversation. Oh, wow. Yeah, seriously. Spoiler alert. This, this series is really good and you should buy it, but uh, go ahead and spend at least the next hour listening listening to even more about why you should read this series. Absolutely. It was a dreamy conversation, and I think that it was 
just something that, you know, that was a dream to cover, you know, with the translator. Especially. But let's drop in into our conversation on our dreams of dust. Our Dreams at Dusk is a queer manga fan's dream of a story that tackles the wide spectrum of the LGBTQ community and explores our lives and the struggles of our lives so beautifully. And it's such an amazing story. And we're here to have the amazing translator of Our Dreams of Dusk and a ton of other great manga, including My Lesbian Experience of Loneliness and My Soul Exchange Diary, That Blue Sky Feeling, and so many other manga. Jocelyn Allen, thank you for coming on. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to be here and talk about an amazing comic with you. Yeah. I first read Our Dreams of Dust just earlier this year, but I had seen so much about it going around since it came out last year. People have been sharing it and spreading the word about what an amazing series it is. And I have been a big fan of your work on other manga as well, and I think you did an amazing job with the translation. So I'm really excited to talk with you today about not only your career history as a manga translator, but also about your work on the series and your thoughts on the series. Oh, wow. Thanks so much for the kind words. <laughs> I didn't realize I had fans. But um, yeah, I've been translating a lot of like LGBTQ related manga for the last few years, which is something that's really close to my heart. And this series in particular, I love it so much. And I'm so, so happy about the reader reaction to it. It's just been amazing to see people like embrace this series. Mm-hmm. I mean, it is so special because, again, I don't think there's another manga available over here uh, translated that quite goes as broadly and as specifically as it does in exploring LGBTQ characters, like, across the community. Mm -hmm. I don't think there's any books other than this one, even in Japan. Like, it's not about <laughs> translation. Like, this is a really unique work and it's amazing that it got published and even more amazing that it got translated into english yeah mm. i remember when seven seas announced they licensed this and how big of a deal it was it had oh, a yeah. huge readership um like in scans and stuff like that a lot of people were just like embracing this to the point where when i when it was announced that i was going to be translating it i got people asking me on twitter like how are you going to translate dareka-san's name and because <laughs> 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 they had already they already had like a, a fan kind of vocabulary for this series and they didn't want that to change with the official translation mm -hmm. that's really interesting we actually got a question i don't we didn't get a question asking about darkest on thing but i am curious like the thought process that went into like translating 
her name from Japanese to someone-san in English, because that's always an interesting question with names of characters, whether to leave them as they are or to translate them. And there are some other, like, names of, like, places, like the high school, Shimanai High School, is not translated. So that's really interesting to me. Yeah, names are a tricky thing because a lot of, not always, but often an artist intentionally gives a character a particular name with a particular meaning. And it's easier to do that in Japanese because of kanji, which have like an inherent visual meaning attached to them. So, you know, like the classic example of like Sailor Moon and her name is Usagi, which is rabbit, right? But yeah, and they translated as bunny with the first, you know, dub. Oh yeah, and, the Tokyo Pop. <laughs> and it was just like, <laughs> don't do that. It's her name. Her name yeah. is Usagi. Like, <laughs> So it's a really fine balance because like, is it important? That meaning, is it important enough to change the actual name? Because the name is, it's a proper noun. Like you don't just get to change it. Like it's not a regular word in that way. But with Dareka-san, I mean, Dareka is literally just someone, right? And yeah. their their identity kind of revolves around that in the series. And especially you see in the last volume, I think it's the last volume or the third volume, in which Chaiko is telling the story of how they met, he and his partner met Dareka-san and how they kind of named Dareka-san that gave them that name. And it's important you see that it's important that it's the meaning is is the critical part. It's not the name name. It's the fact that they realize they could be anyone. They're just someone in a crowd. So I think to me, it was important to like, it was more important to convey that sense of self because in a book like this, which is so much about sense of self and identity and gender, it's really important to have that. Dadekai is not just a name. It's a chosen moniker where they can be whoever they want to be. Like they're not, bound by these kind of constraints. Mm-hmm. And I think that was a, a really great choice to get that meaning across because if it had been left as just Darika, most readers who might not be aware of like the Japanese meaning would have just interpreted it as a name. But in the context of the story, the idea that someone just wants to be someone and seen as someone is so important. Yeah, exactly. And that's, I mean, I was really fortunate in translating this series and that the entire series had already come out in Japanese before I started working on it in English. And I'd already read the series in Japanese. So I knew that arc, like I knew Dareka-san's arc and where the origin of the name was going when I started the series with book one when I was translating, um, which was definitely an advantage because I don't always get to do that. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's always great to have just the context of what comes later to kind of inform, like, how to adapt the story. Yeah, absolutely. The The context, I mean, the artist has all that context when they're writing it. So they're leaving this trail of clues and like, you know, foreshadowing, what have you. So to be able to read that whole, or know that whole process, know where the artist is going with, with the series, it really helps form a better translation, a more true translation. Mm -hmm. I guess a similar question that we actually got from localization on our Twitter was about the use of pronouns for someone-san and Misura, since in the original Japanese, often their gender identities are made vague. That's another thing I was curious about. Pronouns are hard all the time <laughs> with Japanese and English because English yeah like English grammar demands pronouns you can't 
you can't have a sentence without a proper noun or a pronoun. Like it just doesn't work. And you don't want to say someone's name over and over and over again, which is acceptable in Japanese. Like it's completely normal to just say someone's name constantly during a conversation. But in a series like this, especially, it's really important to get the pronouns right. And it's really important to think about where those pronouns are coming from and how I can best portray the Japanese, which is largely pronoun-less, and how I can get that best into English. And Kamatani, the artist, leaves some kind of breadcrumbs for me, which was very helpful. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. like, for instance, Misora uses male pronouns to refer to himself. So he, he calls himself Boku, which is a, a masculine pronoun for I in Japanese. Um, so that was sort of a, a hint that like, Misora is questioning his gender, but or his gender identity, but he's also kind of, right now, he's erring on the side of guy, for lack of a better way of putting it. So, I mean, he... Right. So there's that, which is like, okay, that's a, a hint for what kind of pronouns I need to be taking up here. But it's also, um, tasku is also a big part of the pronoun choice, because it is largely from his perspective. And he's not the most aware of people at the beginning of the series especially right oh yeah oh yeah <laughs> so he he sees a someone song and to him they present as like fairly feminine right um the long hair and kind of graceful movement and and so i think that tusku would just naturally gravitate towards the she because i don't think he would be very aware of a they option so there mm. is you know and he also looks at Misora, and when Misora is dressed as a girl, he thinks he uses feminine pronouns because he thinks it's a girl. And then when he sees Misora in his like school uniform, it's like, oh, he's a boy. So Tusku's own perceptions are like shaping pronoun usage as well. But then there's also clues from the characters, like um, Chaiko. Right at the beginning of the book, Chaiko refers to someone's on as Kanojo, her, she. So. Mm-hmm. There's people kind of giving you hints, even though it's they're few and far between, but I kind of tried to follow that, and I hope that that showed what Kamatani was trying to do and what Kamatani's thoughts were in, like, what kind of pronouns these people would use. Mm-hmm. Like, in the story, other people are using she, her pronouns for someone's song, so that's, I think that's definitely a good call to make. I am curious if someone's on ever refers to themselves by any pronouns. Yeah, um, they do. They use the pronoun watashi, which is uh, the standard I, but it's also a feminine I. Like, women would use watashi regardless of conversational level. Hmm. But it's also the standard pronoun, which is just the standard polite way of speaking about oneself. So it's still vague there. And that's, yeah, I don't know where someone-san would put themselves. Like, personally, after, like, going through their arc, I see them as a they, and I would definitely use them-they pronouns for someone. Mm -hmm. But as to what someone-san themselves thinks, I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Someone-san is definitely someone who doesn't want to be boxed into any labels, and that's kind of the struggle that they deal with in the book, which is really interesting to me. Yeah. Like, I think... A great aspect of someone sans character is that even though that they have like kind of this distant quality to them, mysterious quality, like we see like towards the end of the story, 
But they themselves are still kind of figuring themselves and what they want out, especially like in their interactions with Shaiko and like their kind of quandary about like how they feel about what is happening uh, between, you know, Shaiko and Seichiro, Seichiro-san. Yeah. Yeah. That's a really compelling part of the story, too. Oh, man. (laughs) (laughs) I I think I think that was the point where I started crying. (laughs) <laughs> oh yeah, I cried like when I read it for the first time, and then I cried when I translated it, and then I cried on every draft of the translation. <laughs> like, <laughs> and then when I got a, my copies of Volume Four, I just looking at the cover, I was like, "Oh no, I'm gonna cry." <laughs> <laughs> oh, their parting scene where Tycho visits in the hospital, and then like in that moment, like he becomes like younger and like j- like jump off the bed and like tanks him for like being his partner and love his life for the last 30 years it's like this fantasy moment like of what his final words are before he passes away it's so beautiful so beautiful it's just such a moving scene and it's so it's such a perfect scene for a book like this because it's really showing that diversity of like lived experiences and how like yeah you can be a queer man and have this beautiful relationship that lasts your whole life and you don't have to be like the tragic gay or whatever, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that's the wonderful thing about the story is that it shows different, you know, queer people in different parts of their lives at different ages. And what's great about the Chaiko Seichiro relationship is that they've been a couple for like three decades. That's longer than most of the other characters in the story have been alive. And it's just kind of amazing to see, see them, like, realize that and be like, wow, this guy has had so much more experience than we have. We can't really say anything to him about how he should, like, live mm. because, like, he has had the lived experience, you know, to make those decisions. Though even towards the end, like, he also is, like, indecisive of whether he should go visit Satyr at the hospital and does need that push. So it also shows that, you know, it's still hard even as you get older to know what the right thing to do is. And such a really poignant point. Absolutely. Yeah, I totally agree. Before we continue on to gushing about our dreams of dust, <laughs> I did want to discuss, you know, your career history in translation, Jocelyn. But even before we get into that, let's discuss, like, how did you get into manga? Oh, that's such an origin story question, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, I think the manga machinations uh, guys—they call it. They always like to ask their guests, you know, their, you know, manga origin stories. <laughs> yeah, manga origin stories. Well, I've always been into comics. Like, I've always read comics. Like, I, more as a casual reader, I was never like a huge like super hero comics person. But I read Spider Man and like all that kind of stuff. Oh, yeah, and also I guess like. Probably my first contact with manga was like all women of a certain age, Sailor Moon. (laughs) (laughs) So I was reading Sailor Moon when they were first putting it out, like Tokyo Pop and like, what is that magazine? Mix? Was that Mix Mm -hmm, scene? Something mm -hmm. like that? And, you know, I would read it sporadically. But uh, at the time I lived in Edmonton, Alberta, which does not get a lot of Japanese pop culture, unsurprisingly. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so sometimes I would find the the magazine, sometimes I wouldn't. Um, and, you know, I watched like the fan subs of Sailor Moon and a bunch of other anime. And then I moved to Japan, <laughs> like totally unrelatedly. I just got a job there after I graduated university. 
What was the job? Oh, I was um, on the JET program. I don't know if you've heard of it. Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Yeah, so I got... Because I, I have a degree in mathematics, which is like supremely useless so <laughs> oh. <laughs> so I was like what am I going to do with my life and there was the jet program I was like oh that sounds like fun I didn't speak any Japanese or anything like that and so I was learning Japanese and the thing that's really accessible if you're learning Japanese and learning to read is manga like manga for little kids because it has all the furigana and there's not a lot of kanji it's it's a lot more accessible so I just started reading a lot of like kid manga like chibi mariko chan and stuff like that mm-hmm. oh yeah I, I still love chibi mariko chan <laughs> so good yeah and then i just was like wow there's so many more books here like there's manga is so so much bigger than comics is or was especially at that time comics was a lot there was a lot less indie comics work that was accessible people were doing the the underground and indie comics that would be graphic novels but um at the time they weren't really accessible because there was like no internet and stuff like that so when i moved to japan it was like all this manga and it's on every topic under the sun there's like a million different kinds of niches so yeah that just dove right in and that was the end of me (laughs) (laughs) oh that's wonderful so, I mean, from there, you know, getting into manga, like, when did you, like, first start, like, doing translations on your own? Um, I don't know if I ever really did translations on my own. I would, a little bit, like, for practice, I would uh, translate books that um, had already been translated in English, and then I would compare my translation with the, the published translation. But I mostly did that for novels rather than manga. Because I think part of it was that manga in English was really hard to get a hold of in Japan, but novels in English were a lot easier to get a hold of. Hmm. Because usually, like, bigger bookstores will have, like, an English book section, and they usually stock, like, classic Japanese novels that have been translated into English. So, like, Banana Yoshimoto's Kitchen or, you know, Soseki Natsume's, like, I Am a Cat. So you can... Those are more accessible with... Again, in a time when the internet was not really happening, (laughs) now you can just order it. Like, it doesn't matter. So, yeah, and then I didn't really translate manga like that. I just started translating manga when I got hired to translate manga, which was kind of (laughs) great. I guess I was just lucky. That is great. But, like, where did you get to start translating professionally? Like, before manga or... Like, even with novels, like, what were some of your first translation projects? I was actually working, um, I did, like, side translations for the jobs I had, because I was, I taught at high school for, I taught at a bad girl's high school, which was pretty funny. (laughs) (laughs) A bad girl's high school? Yeah, it was, like, a high school specifically for bad girls. Like, they're not going to, like, they're not going to university they smoke and they hang out outside of gas stations and they yell Whoa, like real Sukeban delinquent <laughs> girls like the kinds of friends Sukeban deck not not quite that because obviously this wasn't the 70s but yeah they were like right. really <laughs> not quite as extreme they're not beating up people with yo-yos no but they were really like the bad girls like shouting at teachers <laughs> <You're> like... <laughs> but they liked me so it was fun 
But so in that capacity, like I would do translation work for other teachers or like parents and things like that. So it's just sort of like mm, amateur kind of stuff on the side. Um, But then I was headhunted, which was weird to work as a in-house editor and translator um, for Honda. (laughs) Oh, wow. (laughs) So I, I was working... That was my first, that was me working in house. And that was the first time I was really like full time. I'm translating. And um, I was working under more experienced translators. There was about, it was a small office. So there's about, I think, 10 of us all together, like including the office manager and stuff. So I think there were four translators. Well, five, if I count the translation manager. And so I was working under all these amazing, and they were all women too, which was really lucky again like it was so exciting and everyone there was a really good atmosphere of like we all work together we're all friends and so I worked under these really great women who totally just taught me like I would do my translation and hand it into my manager and she would mark it up and give it back <laughs> <laughs> you know? all right here's what you did wrong you gotta fix this this and this yeah that was basically it, it she's like would you say this no you wouldn't say it like this do it again like and <laughs> and it was great like i i honestly can't re- recommend the experience enough like if you are interested in translation and you can get a job in-house it's the best training program there is like you will learn so much and I was translating, this is obviously it's Honda, so I'm doing like automotives and engineering and stuff like that. And I have a science background, so that was great for me. But you learn so much by like, like I've never wanted to know about diesel particulate filters, but <laughs> you know, I sure do now. <laughs> you just, you're forced to really expand your your knowledge base, which is essential in translating in general but especially if you're translating fiction of any kind like fiction can be about anything and you have to know about that right so having that experience of being forced out of your comfort zone is really so crucial i think to becoming a successful translator of what you actually want to translate most definitely i mean it sounds like you really like broadened like a vocabulary of words, some of which you probably don't use in uh, day-to-day translation, but just that knowledge base is incredibly useful. I'm sure if you ever, like, translated a racing manga, uh, that would be super useful. Man, that would be wild. I've never had to use my car knowledge (laughs) translating manga, and it's so frustrating. I'm like, I know everything about cars! Look, look, you could could have been the translator of Initial D. (laughs) If only I had gone out for it. (laughs) Yeah, it's really wild that yeah. I I don't, the really funny part of the whole thing is I don't drive. I don't have a license. I didn't have a license when I was working at Honda. None of the women I worked with drove. <laughs> like, <laughs> <laughs> we, we just all know a lot about cars. Yeah, I mean you don't have to do the thing to know a lot about the thing, I suppose. And I guess although I'm sure like I mean it would help to know like how it feels to drive if you were like actually like writing about driving, but just like knowing the ins and outs of how a car works. You don't need to drive the car to know how to build one. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but that's interesting. So working like in-house with a team of other translators, what is it like like working at an agency like that? And then from there going on to work freelance? Like what are some of the differences? Um. Well, I mean, obviously the big difference is like as a freelancer, I'm working alone. Um, in my house <laughs> or you know a cafe wherever <laughs> like 
I don't get that constant feedback, which um, is something I miss. And I actually translated a novel recently, and I have my editor gave me just tons of feedback, and it was amazing. I was like, oh, I miss this. Like, I need this so much. <laughs> Um, so that's definitely a big difference. But on the other hand, like as a freelancer, I don't have to go to the office at those set hours. I don't have to report to anyone else. Um, I choose the projects I want to work on. I don't have to translate whatever comes across my desk. Uh, so there are a lot of advantages to being a freelancer. And I don't think I could go back to working in an office. I've been doing this for like almost 15 years now. Like, Wow. I'm totally unsuitable for society anymore. Like, <laughs> Do you like apply for translation jobs or like do they get past your way and then you pick which ones you like? Um, at this point, because um, I've been doing this for so long now that I have relationships with all the publishers I work with and uh, they will contact me if a project comes across their desk that they think is I would be good for. So usually my editors or people at the publisher just email me and say, hey, do you want to do this series? And I say, yeah, or no. <laughs> I mostly say, yeah, though. I almost never say no to a project. As a reader, I'm kind of fussy. But as a translator, I love translating everything. Like it's just constant word puzzles. And like, just the act of translation is really fun for me. So even if the subject matter is not something that I would necessarily be interested in as a reader, as a translator, it's just another challenge. <laughs> Yeah, it's like a creative exercise. There's like an art to making something sound right in another language. Like yeah. adapting it from a language to the next. Absolutely. Yeah, that's exactly it. You're always trying to like shift the language and like learn that tone. How does this character talk? Who is this person? You know, it's always the story is always there with those characters to pull you into new ways of using language, which is what I like. <laughs> mm -hmm. And, like, how did you get your first manga translation job? And then, like, build up, like, more and more, like, different projects from there? I think I just cold called a bunch of publishers. <laughs> well, not actually called, emailed. I just emailed everyone who was publishing manga and was like, I'm a translator. I'm good at it. I so cockily thought. <laughs> <laughs> and then... uh Publishers, a couple publishers got in touch with me and gave me kind of like a trial chapter. You know, how are you going to do with this? And I sent that in and then I started getting work. And when I first started freelancing, well, when I first started freelancing, I was doing mostly commercial, like entirely tra commercial translation. So we're, I was still doing work for Honda and like other automotive agencies and, and translation agencies and doing a lot of the usual like engineering, automotive, science-related translations. Um, and then I s reaching out to publishers to try and get into work more creative translations with novels and manga. And so I started slowly mixing that in to my workload. So I was doing commercial translation and creative translation for a while there. But now for the like, I don't know, last five, six years maybe, I've been doing only creative translation so manga novels and things like that nice yeah i like it is that like <laughs> always a goal like from the beginning to be like ah, oh, i really want to work in manga like when you started translating um initially it was more i wanted to do novels but i thought that was a pipe dream because 
a not a lot of stuff gets translated into English uh, in terms of literature, and b most of that stuff gets translated by like academics who don't need to make a living from it. Mm. Doing a translation, if you're like a, an academic, it's part of your publishing. So it's you're already working at a university or something. They pay you. You don't need to get paid that much for doing this translation, but you do need to publish constantly because that's how academia works, right? Right. So I didn't have a lot of hope of ever doing any creative translation. So this is like a gift, basically. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it's a strange world. And there's more stuff being published now, which is why I think it's easier to make a living full-time at translating creative work. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Would you say like translating novels is like more of a competitive like market than translating manga is like there are less like novel projects to go around than manga projects yes absolutely mm. i mean if you look at the number like there are publishers dedicated to publishing nothing but japanese comics in translation in north america <laughs> mm -hmm. there are no publishers dedicated to publishing only japanese literature in translation so just from that, you can see, like, there's way more work when it comes to manga and light novels than, you know, the more... I don't like to use that division of literature and not literature, because it's all literature, but in terms of, like, that perception of, like, this is a novel, ah, and these are, like, light <laughs> novels and manga, like, <laughs> there, is a, there is a difference in how they're perceived in, in the publishing market, and it's really... You can see it most clearly in the fact that there are publishers of nothing but manga, and there are not publishers of nothing but standard Japanese novels. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Then I'm wondering, like, what was one of the harder projects you've ever had to translate? Would it be like a novel or just a, what was the hardest manga you've ever had to translate? Uh, that's a good question. I think the hardest, I mean, and this might actually is of manga or novels, I think the hardest thing to translate was something like the My Lesbian Experience with Loneliness series. Mm. Not so much in terms of language, although linguistically there's there's a lot of stuff in those books. But the story story wise, they're very difficult works. Like they're very painful books and they're, you know, the authors the artist, she's putting her whole being into these books and it's hard to watch. Like I know a lot of readers have that experience with her books, but as a translator, you kind of have to become her. <laughs> you have to be inside her mind. Yeah, exactly. Like, that's my job is to, like, understand this book better than anyone else and then regurgitate it into English. So I have to spend a lot of time with these really difficult feelings um, with her work. And that's that's really hard. And I think those books are the most difficult, maybe, because it's just, it's a lot, it's a very deep emotional commitment from me. My other books, like books with like a lot of um, reader expectation attached to them, also feel like I feel more pressure, and so that's harder. Like uh, the Rose of Versailles, which oh yeah, you know ev that's like a huge classic, big deal book, and so with every line, you can almost hear the internet whispering, like, I don't think that's the right translation. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's such a classic, and people were anticipating the release of it for so long. Yeah. There was just so much build-up expectation. It's intimidating to work on a book like that, because you can hear every little 
every possible critique, everything everyone is ever going to say about why you did everything wrong. You can feel all the tweets filling up your notifications already. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Was it a comfort to do Claudine, another Ryoko Ikeda manga before Rosarus Eyes and just like kind of understand her voice before going into it? Actually, yeah. I mean, I was happy to do Claudine. Um, I think, did I do Claudine before Rosa Versailles? Or were you working on, on them at the same time? Because the production of Rosa Versailles was, went on so long. Maybe your translation work was like even alongside Claudine? I think I did do Claudine first, but not. Mm. there wasn't that much of a gap in terms of like when I did them, like they were done fairly close together, if I remember right. So, but it was nice to work on an Ikeda title that didn't have all that baggage. Like no, no, no one knew about Claudine. Like it was still a hard book because obviously it's about, you know, a trans man when that wasn't a thing, like when there wasn't that identity and like Ikeda herself doesn't handle it as sensitively as as someone would now because it was written in, you know, the seventies. I mean, it was difficult in that, and there was a lot of difficult choices to make in terms of the translation, but no one knew about Claudine. No one has, there's not an anime of it. People haven't been waiting to read it for 30 years, you know, like. Well, I'm glad that they licensed it because I really enjoyed reading it. I'm glad to have, like, not more than one Ikeda work translated for sure. I know, we're so lucky. But yeah, I imagine, like, because it is so of its time, like, to kind of adapt it for, like, more modern sensibilities in terms of the language used was difficult. Like, I listened to your shoujo and tell on Claudine, Mm. and you were discussing, like, the choice to, you know, refer to Claudine with she, her pronouns throughout the book, because that was kind of the narrative framing device of, like, the... therapist was kind of like describing and narrating Claudine's life so even though Claudine you know is a man he self he's a trans man like in the story like characters frequently misgender him and that's just something that's a part of the story that had to be kind of kept yeah absolutely that was exactly it like I that was something I had to think a lot about but you know in the end I have to stay true to what the author is doing to the best of my abilities Mm-hmm. But I, I think that also brings us to what were some of the difficulties in translating our dreams at dusk in the same way? Because there are also a lot of, you know, difficult terms and especially like the use of some slurs in the series. That's always a really sensitive topic, like when it comes to queer stories, like the Banana Fish anime translation had a lot of uh, unnecessary slurs in it that weren't like necessary from what the original Japanese was that people, Mm. you know, found issue with. And I also think was very unnecessary. I think the original manga also maybe had them peppered in more too. And then, you know, Our Dreams of Dusk also has some very harsh slurs used at at certain points, like the F slur, which is really uncomfortable. But I mean, I just wanted to hear like, in the original Japanese, like what was like the thought behind like, what language was used in the story oh yeah that was i like when i was typing that i felt like ah like my insides were dying Mm. like i didn't want to type it at all (laughs) it was 
<laughs> it was really uncomfortable, but it, it, it's supposed to be uncomfortable. That's the point of the scene when uh, when Misora and Tasuke have the fight at the at the festival, and the Japanese Japanese cursing and slurs are, are different from English in that it's it's all about the way you use words. Well, not all about, but more about the way you use words. So, like, there's not most words are not specifically curse words. Like, there's no f word in Japanese, for instance. Like, it's just how you say something and and the register you use and and your tone of voice that indicates that you're cursing. So, you really have to pay attention to the context of the words. And like, Kamatani uses the word homo throughout the series, um, and sometimes I translated that as like homo or queer or something like that when it's meant in that like at the beginning when tasku is everyone's like ah you homo and like calling him gay and stuff like that they're using the same word as what misoto uses later at the festival but they're using it in a different way like his friend what is his name tachibana like tachibana says like i don't actually <laughs> think you're a homo i mean come on like we're just fooling around and so there's not the weight of the word. Like, Tasku feels the weight. He stabs him through the heart when yeah. they're like, you homo. But he, you see that he feels it, but they also don't mean that weight to it. It's not the context of how they say it isn't that heavy. But when Misora mm-hmm. calls him a homo at the, at the festival, he means it. He means every bit of vitriol and hate that he can muster into that word. And, in that situation, like if if he uses homo the way the the kids at the beginning of the book do, it wouldn't be that weight. It wouldn't be that hurtful or heavy as it is. It is in Japanese in this scene. So then you have to reach for what is a really painful, like what is the equivalent in this scene? What would you say in English if you were having this kind of fight and you really wanted to hurt the person you were talking to? Which is how I ended up on the F word, because it was just like, it just felt like that's what, that's where the equivalent is. Like, that's the power that is in this scene. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think that makes a lot of sense to me, because, yeah, I, I think you do need to establish that level of contrast between, like, how hurtful, like, a term is like in the moment and like the degree of separation because if it's like the same word and if it was kept the same word in both of those different scenes that we're describing then that might not have got across the like just the malice in the moment when Misura says the word so that makes a lot of sense to me because it you know reading it it like the spike definitely came true yeah. oh yeah like it hurts Oh, it's so uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Even thinking about it now, it just makes me uncomfortable. <laughs> yeah. Can I ask about another F word that is used in this uh, in the series? Uh, oh, yeah. You, you, you do mention that, obviously, the word fuck doesn't really, like, exist in Japanese vernacular. Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah. I guess, uh, how did you come to using that for Utsumi's big scene? Oh, I forgot about that. Um, remind <laughs> me of the scene. Which is that in volume? Oh, the scene three, is when Utsumi Volume Three. Yeah. yeah, I don't have the English copy of Volume Three. Oh, he's cycling on the road with Tasuke. Oh, yeah, They're yeah. talking about Oyama's microaggressions, and Utsumi's oh, yeah. like, you know, oh, I know Oyama is like 
nice, but you know, I'm not so nice. And then he bicycles farther than Tatsuku, and then he just yells fuck at the top of his lungs. Yeah, <laughs> just that's venting such a great out his frustrations. I totally yeah. remember that now. Where oh, I want to find the Japanese word of that. What was it? I totally forgot about. Oh, yeah! It's, I, sorry, I just found it. <laughs> it's, uh, mukatsuku, which, mukatsuku is like, annoying or what a hassle or ah fuck this shit like mukatsuku is what you say <laughs> like uh like when just something is just like you can't stand it it's so dumb and so irritating and you just like shout it like a an uh, an interjection and in that situation in english you're not going oh darn you're like fuck like <laughs> yeah, just sheer exasperation. Like, oh fuck my life, yeah. God. Yeah, like that kind of context. That that would be that would be one hell of a scene if if Utsumi just went, "Darn it, I was misgendered." <laughs> yeah, like it's it's not what you would say. Like, I mean, I feel like Utsumi as a character, he's very careful and he's very thoughtful, and he he uses right. words very carefully. He's not a an impatient or like hurried person he's not confrontational oh, either he yeah is, he's really he's boundlessly patient right right he's not aggressive so when you think about someone like that and they just explode i just can't imagine anything other than fuck coming out of his mouth you know like Right. I mean, that that shows you how much Japanese i know cuz I, I just kind of assumed he would have said something like oh so or you know, something yeah. like that. And like, so, so is more like, ah, damn it. Or like, ah, shit. Like, I mean, it can be. F- yeah. If yeah. the tone is right or something, it could be fuck. But like, Mukatsuku is like, ah, like, it's just like a, an internal scream. <laughs> like, I don't know. Mm, it's, okay. I see. It's hard to like really communicate the, the, the feeling of Mukatsuku, but it's like in that moment, like when he is on the bridge and he's just like, it just like pops out of him and explodes. Like you're really annoyed about something. Yeah, like it's just like this is so dumb and why are we doing this over and over and over and over? Like, come on. <laughs> I, I gotta give it to Utsumi. I would I don't think I would be as patient, honestly, if I were in his shoes. No, Utsumi mm-hmm. is like has the patience of a saint in this series. Oh yeah. I mean it really says something that Aoyama pushed him to the point where he did just have to tell her, I've had enough, just stop, you're hurting me, don't do this. She pushes him to the point where he does outright have to tell her that, hey, what you're doing is hurting me. Because before he's like, just passive enough to be like, oh, it's okay, you know, not getting too angry, but like, man, that Oyama stuff... <laughs> God, I've known so many people like her who, like, think that they're being helpful, but, like, they don't really understand what you want and are constantly saying, like, hurtful things that show their lack of understanding. And it's just, man, that storyline was just so perfect. Oh, that, yeah. It's like a (laughs) revelation of that. (laughs) 
<laughs> it's that clueless would-be ally who's just like steamrolling yeah. over you. Where you're like, you have to listen to be an ally. <laughs> Oh, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Like, consistently, she doesn't listen to what Utsumi wants. Like, he says, oh, it's okay. I don't really want to go to this girl's party you're setting up. Like, just the fact that she wants to set up a party for the girls, as if to imply she still thinks of Utsumi as one of the girls, is painful enough. But the fact that he goes and tells her, hey, I I will like connect with them when I want to. And then she takes that as like, oh, good. I will go ahead and set this party up. <laughs> and then later she tries to pester him to, you know, speak at the school. And he keeps saying, hey, I don't want to do this. I don't. That's not like a thing that I like to do. I'm good at doing. And then she just keeps pounding him on it. It's just man. And that's why he yells fuck. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that storyline is also such a good contrast to what happened in Volume 2 between Tasuku and Misura. And, like, Tasuku trying to... Thinking that it is up to him to help Misura and to, you know, help him, like, figure himself out. When, really, he's not understanding what Misa really wanted or needed. And that's just, like, you know, a friend to talk to and then someone to, like, compliment him and, like, validate him that he looks pretty and dresses and stuff. And But Dasuku, like, tries to box him into labels and tries to, like, say, hey, you are th like this, you so you should be doing this. Hey, you should, like, go outside to this festival. Like, you should... Like, Misura wasn't ready to do that. I wasn't, like, like excited about doing that. But it's, like, it's a good storyline, the Oyama Utsumi stuff to kind of emphasize to Tatsuku and also to the reader. Hey, this is, like, not the way you help someone. It's, like, forcing them to do something they're not comfortable with. And not let them just be themselves and do things at their own pace. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that, that, that's a that's a really big important lesson in the series is that, you know, because this series also deals with that feeling of like, wanting to come out to the people you love, but like some people, you know, some people need more time than others. Mm -hmm. And some people don't really feel like they need to come out to everyone or like they aren't yeah. in a hurry. Like, yeah. Saki at the beginning was like, you know, I'm kind of fine with the way things are. I do want to get married someday, but like, I'm I'm not in a rush at the moment just because you know daichi you know finally had enough and was able to just you know come out and feel happy about doing that saki isn't like unhappy you know not being out but and then also with utsumi utsumi also just doesn't like go around and is like openly i mean utsumi is out but he doesn't like necessarily bring it up or talk about it like as much like he keeps to himself and he's like chill with that he's comfortable with that like he just is who he is and that's how he likes to live his life yeah and that's fine that's like um i think that's more prevalent in japan than it is in north america which is one issue when you're bringing over queer work because queer identity and what that means in in japan is a lot different i guess but like it, there's not that emphasis on like coming out and being out some people are out but most of the activists that, and, and that i've talked to their approach is not like everyone should come out but everyone should be able to come out if they want to mm, yeah mm -hmm. like and most people are just like we just want you know 
general society, the non-queer community know that we are here, we exist, and just let us be, <laughs> you know, like let us exist without making us hide or, or putting us in, in, in weird boxes or whatever. And so I think you see that in Our Dreams at Dusk, that lack of emphasis on coming out as the end-all be-all of, of the queer community. I think there's more mm. of an emphasis on that in North American queer identity, which, and this is not a criticism at all. This is just how we approach things differently. Like identity in Japan in general is different than it is in North America. Mm -hmm. So I like how those identities play out in Our Dreams at Dusk with like some characters are fine with being closeted or not even closeted. They just are like, this is not that huge a part of my identity that I need to like make my whole life revolve around it. Like, yeah. And I think that's nice to see in, in, especially in the North American comic scene where so often like coming out is so emphasized and not everyone can or wants to. And so you feel kind of like marginalized in that sense. To, so to see that reflected in, in a book like this, I think is really welcome and helpful. Most definitely. I think it's an interesting like difference philosophy, but I also think like it's another interesting theme of the series that you shouldn't like box people into just specific labels that only see them as that because people have multitudes to them. Like there are all sorts of different things and they should kind of, you should treat them at for you know who they are, which is a wide number of things, and not just treat them like defined into like what label you prescribe to them or their relationships to other people. Yeah, exactly. And I think that is kind of encapsulated with someone son who is someone who feels like they don't want to like build relationships with other people. They don't want to you know be defined by the relationships by other people like they just want to be a someone to other people like just some person they don't want to be necessarily someone's friend they don't want to be someone's lover they just want to be a person themselves and it's really interesting and it's like you know despite you know herself someone does care about other people clearly uh she cares about chaiko she cares about seichiro like Ultimately, she's the one who does give Chico the push to go see Sage for the hospital. And she is clearly concerned and worried about it throughout the final volume. But, like, that is kind of how she wants to live her life, is just, just to be herself and not be seen as anything other than herself. Yeah, and that's, you know, that's everyone in this. I think that's, it's great to see all these characters who are all kind of fighting for basically that, just the right to be seen as who they are and how they want to live in this world. And Tusku is the one who doesn't know. Like, he's the one, he's our, you know, our, our blind narrator kind of thing. Like, he just leads us down this path and he doesn't know what he wants or what he needs. And what, by seeing all these people making these choices to live as authentically as, as they can, it kind of guides him to a place where he's comfortable like being a gay and it doesn't end with you know the romance between him and his crush which is how like i think a less i want to say a less nuanced author would take the story like you know it's so it's so easy to tie it up with like and they fell in love and it's like no that doesn't always happen but like and it shouldn't be your self-acceptance isn't about whether or not you get the guy, right? Like, Tasku comes to a place where he, through his interactions with everyone at Cat Clutter, 
he comes to a place where he's okay being gay and he's okay that he has these feelings for this hot guy in his class, but he doesn't need that hot guy to re reciprocate those feelings. Like he can be happy in himself by himself. Mm -hmm. And also it's okay that Tsubaki hasn't figured himself out yet. Like he, towards the end of the story, he just doesn't know like how he feels. He doesn't understand his sexuality, doesn't know what he wants. And that's okay. He can take the time to figure himself out. Like everyone goes at their own pace. And I also think it's just so beautiful that the story ends with both a wedding and a death, like the a new step in the life of a couple and then the end of the life of a couple. Like, it's so poignant and poetic just to see, like, you know, this idea that life goes on. There's so many changes in it. And that's okay. Life is like a series of changing and you don't have to be stuck in one way forever like that's another huge struggle with Tasuku is that he's agonizing over what to do with triangle house because he thinks you know once I make a decision that'll be it you know and so he's like constantly worrying about that decision and ultimately like he learns like that it is like okay to make a decision and change your mind it's also like okay to make a decision and that'll be it like there's no like uh, fatalism to it. There's no like, like you don't have to be kind of bogged down by this idea of permanence that you have to be one way or things have to be one way forever. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. We, we we were kind of talking about it off mic before we started recording, but uh, speaking of kind of the ending and uh, what Lum brought up between uh, the wedding and uh, kind of the end of. Uh, you know, the relationship of uh, Seichiro and uh, and Chaiko, it really feels like, I mean, I, I think personally the story wrapped up pretty beautifully uh, and pretty well, but it also did kind of feel like, it did kind of feel like the series maybe could have used like one more volume to really kind of like, kind of explore these stories just a little bit more possibly, or maybe take the time to explore other characters a little bit more. I don't know. It feel it feels like if if Kamatani had one more volume, uh, we could have gotten more out of the story. Yeah, I think it was intended to go on for longer. Like I think it was meant to be five volumes, probably, because like when you look at volume four, it's like obviously fatter than the other three volumes, and there's a lot of story in volume four. Like, and it kind of happens pretty quickly. Like suddenly they're getting married. Ah. Like, <laughs> <laughs> and I feel like, um, cause the rest of the, and again, like I think that also think that the story wrapped up really well and was beautifully written, but the pacing towards the end feels a bit more rushed than the pacing at the beginning of the series. Yeah. And I wondered if that wasn't because they had to cut the series short like shorter than they had intended on having it because I know that the magazine um that it ran in uh Hibana was canceled like it stopped publishing while Our Dreams at Dusk was still going on and mm. and it moved to I think I want I think it was on the website so it it finished manga 1 uh oh uh that's that manga app isn't it ah oh, yeah I think so yeah, so anyway, some kind of Shogakukan online thing. So it was it moved to an online home and then it ended, but I think the 
end of Hibana might have accelerated the end of the story. Because that's happened a couple times. Um, like when uh, Iki went, stopped publishing, a lot of the stories in Iki either went to other magazines, but the ones that didn't go to other magazines finished up as a previously unpublished, like so that the final chapters would be collected into the book rather than published in a magazine anywhere. And those stories mm. also got accelerated. Like it's like we got to wrap this up quicker than we expected because the magazine's gone now. <laughs> so I wonder if the same thing didn't happen with uh, Our Dreams at Dusk when Hibana folded. They sort of had to, Kamatani had to kind of pick up the pace and finish it a little bit faster than they were intending to. Mm, I, I, I could see that being the case. That I think that tracks. I think it speaks to the strength of the story, though, that when I was reading it the first time, I didn't feel it was too rushed. I feel like the storylines between the wedding of Daichi and Saki, and then the relationship between Orchaiko and Seichiro complement each other really well, as was the exploration of someone, Sam's character, and kind of the uh, conclusion to, like, Sabaki's character arc and Tatsuku's character arc, when he stands up for Sabaki against his dad. Like, I think that all the things, like, come together at the end of the story really well, in terms of kind of finishing off, like, its thematic exploration. Oh, uh, it's various ideas. Absolutely. Like, Kamatani was definitely had it very carefully arced out and plotted out. I, I think, like, it concludes magnificently. I just, I feel like they wanted, like, a f couple more chapters to, like, let it play out a little bit. But, you know, that's just my personal hunch. I could be totally off. Maybe this is exactly <laughs> what they wanted. It's just, I'm always suspicious when one volume is thicker than any of the other volumes. That's usually a sign that they had to, like, uh, wrap up a series sooner than expected. Mm -hmm. I could definitely see it, especially since like every volume of the series is so beautifully like self-contained in terms of focusing on a particular uh, character and a particular struggle of Tasuku within that volume. Like the first volume is we spotlight Daichi and find out her story, and that complements Tasuku getting the courage to kind of come out to other people for the first time and also confess that he does love someone, a boy, to someone else, mm -hmm. which is so really powerful. And then the second volume is all about the relationship between, you know, uh, Tasuku and Misura and Tasuku trying to understand and help and fail to do so with Misura. And then, of course, we have that followed up on in Utsumi and then Tasuku having that character grow to like learning when is the right time to speak out and then what is the right way to help someone and then the final volume uh, you do wonder if like the fourth volume could be split into two different volumes one focusing on Chaiko and his relationship with Seichiro and then the other about someone son and then the wedding between Daichi and Saki because there are a lot of different plot lines going on in that volume but I think like just the specific focus the structure of the series is so definitely deliberate and methodical to make each volume like its own like specific step in Tazaku's character growth and also in learning about this cast of characters. Yeah, absolutely. Like Kamatani is a really thoughtful artist and they really they definitely had their ideas set out and ready to go before they started even drawing page one. So mm -hmm. I wanna kinda discuss another aspect of like an aspect of the translation and we got a question off our twitter about it about like how you handle like translating some of the onomatopoeia in the series uh, particularly during the scene 
where Tosku's kind of body breaks as he thinks about, like, longing to touch uh, Sibaki's face. Like, kind of the most iconic page, I think, in the series that, like, everyone I saw share when the series was coming out. Yeah, that's such a great moment where he's just like... (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I I really like the imagery there. I love how Kamatani, like, uses the fantastical to, like, express emotional moments. It's just so beautiful. Oh, Kamatani's visual metaphors are, like, so beautiful. Like, the different ones they employ throughout the series. Like, kind of associating Misera with this fishbowl and these guppies in the fishbowl. And this idea that Tasaku and others are, like, looking in and Misera, like, in this confined space where they are, like, expressing themselves and living, like, as a metaphor for the mm-hmm. drop-in center. Mm-hmm. And then just the ways that they employ that metaphor throughout that second volume as the situation progresses and like when Misura is leaving Tazaku's room and he's like imagining like this glass of water with the guppy inside it like kind of leaping out of it and so like it's he's like trying to keep the guppy like contained where he can see him he's trying to keep Misra like from leaving like where he can see him mm-hmm. and like then you know in the festival like when things are like when they are lashing out at each other, like, Tasuku hits the bag of goldfish and it, like, falls on the floor. And then Sibaki comes in and says, hey, what are you doing? Can't you eat the fish are dying? Like, the relationship between them is dying. And, like, they are hurting each other. Like, man, it's just such a really precise and really well-executed symbolism with that. And then with Sibaki, too, like, they associate, like, the UFO with him and there's that great scene then in the third volume where like Sabaki, you know is ranting at Tasuku about you know how he resents that everyone in the drop-in drop center is so open and how that irritates him and then we see him like sequestered like crouching down inside like this UFO and then Tasuku rips out the window of the UFO to like go inside mm. and talk to him like in that intimate space yeah there's like, some really uh, good like visual work in this book for sure mm-hmm. oh absolutely one of the most like amazing visual experiences I've ever had with a comic <laughs> quite honestly like I, I especially oh, love yeah. all the uh all the kind of boating imagery used and how it's used to show that, hey, you know, we're all kind of in this together. We're all just trying to live our lives and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, the boat made out of, like, the pictures that Tasuku and Tsubaki took, like, at the conclusion of their fight in Volume 3 is super beautiful metaphor about how they have created, like, this relationship through these memories that they have created with each other. That is just so, such powerful imagery, such a great idea visualized there. Absolutely, yeah. Um, I don't know about the sound effects, though. Um, that was the question from the, from your Twitter? Yeah, yeah. Like, just in general, how do they happen, or? (laughs) Well, did you have any challenges in terms of, like, translating them? Actually, there's one in like the last one I was wondering about when Jingle Bells is playing and like we're hearing like the lyric to Jingle Bells like in the scene. Oh, I think that's actually just as is in the Japanese. Really? Was it yeah. was it in English? Yeah, like yeah, yeah. in the original I'm pretty wow. sure it was in English. <laughs> yeah, the, yeah, to that that looked like it was already kind of a part of the art to me anyway. 
Oh, I was going to compliment the letterer for their amazing <laughs> work with that. <laughs> no, no, it's in English in the book, yeah. Oh, nice. Yeah, it's just um, as is, I guess. Which I guess makes sense because it's an English song. But um, not every artist would leave it in English. I guess sound effects are always really hard to do because... Um, for one thing, sound effects function as actual words in Japanese in a way that they don't in English. So, like, you can say, like, uh, kino ma pa to itchatta. Like, pa is just like a word for, like, pop or, like, go or, like, a, a noise of, like, things exploding kind of thing. But you can say pa to iku and it means, like, we just went wild. Like, we had a great time. Mm -hmm. And you can't say, like, we just boom in English. Like, it's weird. <laughs> <laughs> We had so, a we had a real kablamming good time. I don't yeah, English English sound effects really aren't like even real words most of the yeah, time. We don't really use them <laughs> as words like that, but they're very words in, in Japanese. Like the same word that means, you know, fluffy and soft is also the sound of fluffy and soft. <laughs> like, <laughs> so you kinda have to like I don't feel like I'm really great at sound effects, but I'm very fortunate to have editors who are. So when they think that my sound effects are bad, they fix them, which is great. <laughs> so I'm pretty sure like half of the sound, like I think, like I don't know who, what has been edited and what hasn't, like I didn't go through the book against my script, but I, I trust the editors to, like my editors have done like a gajillion manga, right? Like, that's what they do. They look at sound effects. And most editors have a very particular... Uh, most editors that I work with, anyways, they have a very particular idea about sound effects. So if we work together for long enough, I know what they like. And I can just do that and kind of go with what they're thinking already. Mm -hmm. My approach is always to say it out loud a lot and try and figure out what that sounds like if I spelled it in English. <laughs> like, <laughs> so you're like, gush, 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 gush. And like, what is that? What is an equivalent sound in English? Like, you know, a machine clacking. Like, like in Japanese, it might be gushk, but in English, that g doesn't really sound like a machine sound. Like, it's too soft. Mm -hmm. So you want something harder, like a k or a wuk or something like that. Like, or like a rat a tat tat. Yeah, like you know, or a kachunk. <laughs> yeah, right. Like English machine sounds have more of a mm. a harder snap to them than than some Japanese machine sounds say like so you just sort of say it out loud and like what does this feel like what is it saying what are they trying to do here and then you just make something up and hope that it, the reader understands that I would always just go with chugga 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 <laughs> that's going to be my new policy going forward <laughs> it's going to be a big change to my manga from now on everything's chugga 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 <laughs> <laughs> all aboard <laughs> that is an interesting question i want to ask you though is that like how closely like do you work with your editor to make like certain choices in adaptation or is it oftentimes like you send in like your translation and then later the editors might change things in the final draft Yes, um, and no, yeah. It's It depends on the company and the editor. It depends on the book. Some books that I've done, I send in my script, and then that's the end of it. Like, I never hear anything again. <laughs> I just get paid, so it's like, okay, at least I got paid. 
And some editors are really like hands on and will come back to me and ask me like, what did you mean by this? What's happening here? What's this sound effect supposed to be representing? So, but in the end, like, I don't have final say over what gets published. So in the end, it is what the editor goes through. Most of the time, my scripts are not, I mean, from what I've seen, I don't compare every book against every script because I don't have time for that. (laughs) Uh, But usually like it's, my translation, but just nicer. Like editors are the best and I love them for the work they do. Like they they make all my work better. So when something's phrased awkwardly in my translation, they'll like make it sound better. And then I feel great because it's like, wow, you made it better. So it's a process that's different with every company and with every editor. Uh, and on novels, I do have final say generally. Like I, I read the final script and I sign off on what gets published. But there's a lot more, I want to say, contextuality. There's a lot less information for a non-Japanese speaker when it comes to a novel. So when my editors change thing on something on a manga, they have the visuals, they have the larger context of this story. It's an ongoing series. So they can get into the voices and the tone and the style more easily than a novel, which is like, there's nothing there but the words. So if you change something, you might change the meaning in a way that the author didn't intend. And so uh, I usually have like full say over the novels that I work on. But manga is usually like I send in the script and I have a back and forth with the editor maybe. And then uh, it gets published. <laughs> mm. And was Our Dreams of Dust like one of those series where you had like that back and forth? Yeah, absolutely. Um, the editor on this series was, oh yeah, Isabel, she's like amazing. I've been working with her for years now on like a bunch of different series and she always has a lot of insightful questions. So when I send in my script, she'll always come back to me with, you know, like in this situation, when he says this, does he mean it like this or did he mean it like this? Like she really tries to like clarify the situation and and any hidden nuances in in the words before she actually rewrites anything or or edits anything. So um, this series was very hands-on. There was a lot of back and forth between us um, to make sure that we got the best meaning because we all, I mean, obviously we all care about all of the books that we work on, but a book like this is really special and it's important in a way that, you know, it really, it reflects a community that's not, often given that time and it reflects it in a way that we don't often see so you really want to make sure that you get it as the best thing you can get onto paper and make it the best book possible right the care is so important because this story will hit so personally with a lot of people who don't often get to read manga that explores like their lives as kind of viscerally and like as intimately as our dreams of dust does and i think that's what makes the story like so great is that it is by a queer author for a queer audience that they can like resonate and relate with on such a deep level like i had like so many flashbacks to events (laughs) in my life while reading the series uh and that's just what makes the book so beautifully powerful in my opinion yeah is that the broad range of experiences it manages to encompass but also just how specific they are to like the lgbtq community yeah absolutely and so when you're translating a book like that with this kind of heavy 
cultural context and, and you really want to do it right. You really want to respect the creator's intentions and respect the story and, and the characters and make this translation something that hits just as hard in English as it does in the original Japanese. And again, I say I, I do this for all of my books, but this one is a special baby, so I maybe took a little extra time. <laughs> <laughs> I was wondering, because, you know, Our Dreams of Dusk is set like in a real life place, Onomichi. I was wondering if you had to do any research on Onomichi while you were working on the series. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Because they bring up facts about it a lot. They the do. Story. Those facts were the bane of my existence. <laughs> 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 I had to find out what those facts meant and what they were talking about and where did this happen and what does this town look like? And I mean, they're all real places and it's a real... The like the uh, vacant home project that you know the cat clutter works on. That's like a whole thing. That's like an actual thing that happens in Onimichi. So they and Kamatani actually reached out to a group, a nonprofit that does this work. So it's very based in like the reality. So then I have to go and find this nonprofit group and look at their work process and what they do <laughs> and like. So yeah, I I learned a lot about Onimichi. <laughs> <laughs> And that's going to be really helpful in future manga projects that are also set in Onomichi. You I'm never sure. know. You <laughs> never know. <laughs> like, yeah, I mean, I wonder Arjuna Dust might encourage tourism there. Well, it's already a pretty popular place for tourism. There's that the cycling thing that's the side story there with with uh, Utsumi is actually a really big deal. Like that whole area is really well known for cycling. They have all these cycling paths and people go there to cycle on holiday. A friend of mine went there to cycle on holiday. So it is actually already pretty much like a tourist town. And it's, I think it's even mentioned in the book that uh, it's like the site of like anime and, and movies have been set there. Like so, oh. who knows? Maybe I will get to use all this knowledge again. <laughs> like, there'll be another nice. book. <laughs> Fingers crossed. I think we might be getting kind of close on our time here. We should probably start wrapping up. Lum, if you uh, have any last questions for uh, for Jocelyn. Yeah, I mean, are there any other are dreams that does related topics you want to talk about? Or should we dive into just some stray questions uh, to wrap up with Jocelyn? I don't think I have anything off the top of my head. I mean... I think it's safe to say that, like, we wholeheartedly recommend Our Dreams at Dusk, and it's it's not just a good LGBTQ comic, but it's just it's just a good comic. Like, like I, I would put this up there with like My Brother's Husband and a Silent Voice in the category of people need to read this. Yeah, in terms of like manga that are that speak very personally about very difficult, you know, subjects sometimes or. Certain experiences that are not often explored. And they're just beautiful books. <laughs> mm -hmm. I mean, yeah, the, the artwork is, is incredible. I mean, all of those books, yeah. Yeah. We've gushed about Kamatani's visual meta metaphors, but gosh, their imageries, their composition is just so incredible. Like, this is one of the most like beautifully drawn manga I have ever read. And it accomplishes so much. It tells so much in its story in such a short period of time and it still feels complete like the second time i read it i noticed so much more than i did even the first time and which is why i wrote like 19 pages and notes that we didn't even <laughs> scratch the surface of in our conversation but that's 
what makes it so special is that it is a work that is so dense and so welcome to being revisited and learn more and understand more. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But we've been speaking a lot about the story and we've speaking a lot about translation. Uh, but I wanted to actually talk to Jocelyn a little bit before we head out about her experiences in interpreting. And I was wondering, like, where you got your start doing interpretation and, you know, some of your experiences with interpreting. Oh, interpreting. It's the one where I talk. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, I started interpreting uh Pretty similar to the way I started translating, which was just sort of amateur on the side. You know, it, like there'd be like a random foreigner show up in my town and no one could talk to them. So I'd be called in because I spoke some Japanese anyways. <laughs> uh, and then when I was working at Honda, I would, you know, sit in meetings and, and that was more of a more professional style. But uh, yeah, and then I just kind of segged into comics and creative interpretation. I only... I only interpret for uh, artists. That's my specialization in interpreting. I can't do other kinds of interpreting. It's just, I don't know if my brain doesn't work like that, or I just don't have that knowledge base. But at any rate, I only work with like uh, manga artists, um, novel writers, uh, film directors, people who are doing fiction, creative work like that. Mm -hmm. I think I have a lot of good experiences interpreting because of that because i'm just like hanging out with really interesting people all the time <laughs> like you know like uh when aya kano the artist of uh requiem of the rose king came to tcaf and i was working with her we just like hung out and talked about like gender identity and construction in society which is like whoa great this is a conversation i want to have <laughs> like that's awesome yeah it was like, stuff like that is great and um or like uh, this novelist Hideo Furukawa, he came and he was doing this uh, modern. He did this modern translation of the tale of Heike, the Heike, which is this really really old um, Japanese book, and he translated it into modern Japanese. And so we did this, and he's like very much like a, a rock star novelist in a way. Like he he doesn't do readings; he does performances. Like if you see him perform a reading, it's like amazing. He just it's like watching a band play or something. He gets just this whole thing he does. And so, but I was interpreting for him and he was doing a reading from this tale of the Heike. So I had to do the reading in English and I had to match him. Like, so he's doing this big rock star reading and I'm like, okay, I guess I'm doing a rock star reading of the tale of the Heike. <laughs> <laughs> um, which was, ended up being really cool and really well received, but it was, it was the first time I've had to read like, because I, I do readings for authors that I interpret for all the time, but I they usually read like a normal reading. So I do that too. So this is the first time I had to like perform a book like that, which was really fun. And I think like the best part about interpreting is just like it's out there with the fans. Like I, I'm doing these events that are like artists are coming up on stage and talking about their work. And afterwards, the fans are coming up to them and getting books signed and things like that. So I get to see all the people who have been affected by this artist. And I, I get to see the real impact that this creative work that we all do makes in people's lives. Like, you know, when, when Inio Asano came, like people came to the table, they were crying. Like, they're just like, you saved my life. And like, when Matsumoto 
Matsumoto Taiyo came. It, he, like, <laughs> people like people came up and were like showing their tattoos that he, they got of his work and like talking about like how their work has changed his work has changed their lives. Like when I'm translating the books, you know, I don't see that. Like I don't see how the reader takes that work in and like changes their life and changes their self with it. I just send the book out into the world. And I, I approach every book like this book is someone's favorite book. This book is going to be something important to someone. So in my mind, I know that these books have meaning and they create meaning and real change in people's lives. But interpreting is where I get to actually see that. And it's so gratifying. It's just like, oh, right. It, it gives me power to go back to translating. <laughs> That's wonderful. I mean, that sounds just so incredibly rewarding, not only to like work with the artists like in person directly and speak with them, but also to see the fans firsthand. Yeah, it's it's amazing. And I will never get tired of it. Like, I'm so impressed and grateful. I'm impressed with and grateful for the, the devotion and, and just the sheer love that these people have for the work. It's it's incredible. It's honestly amazing. Mm hmm. And here's hoping that cons open up again uh, next year. Fingers so that, crossed. You know, <laughs> yeah, uh, hopefully Kamomi Shirahama can come again. I, you know, TCAF had to be canceled this year, but I know a lot of people were super looking forward to her visit. I was so looking forward to it. I worked so hard to make that happen. <laughs> 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 It'll. She's great, and and she really wants to come. So hopefully we can get our schedules lined up again next year, and actually. Welcome, Kamome Sensei. That would be yeah, great. <laughs> and I hope one day Yuki Kamatani can come over to the con and see the fans that have fallen in love with Our Dreams of Dusk and their work, because I think this is also another story that has become so personal and so many people have resonated with and would love to, you know, thank Kamatani Sensei for. That would be great. I'd love to have Kamatani come to TCAF or to, you know, just any con in North America and, like, share this, with, see the fandom that they have here now. Definitely. And uh, I'd like to thank you for coming on this podcast and discussing our dreams at dusk with us and, uh, sh you know, translating series and sharing this story with us because it's such a great book and I'm glad that it came out over here. And I'm really, really appreciative of like, the great care you put into it. Oh, thank you for having me. And thanks for talking about this book. It's always, like I said, it's, it's an important book to me, too. So to see, you know, people welcoming it into their hearts like this is just really gratifying and kind of gives me, like, the fire to keep going <laughs> and translate more work like this. Mm -hmm. It's definitely something, you know, to hold close to your heart. And uh, hopefully we could have you on again some other time to talk about more manga that you know are super close to you that you really love as well. I'm always ready to talk about manga. <laughs> awesome. But until the next time, uh, we'd like to you know ask you like where can people follow your work? You know on social media, keep up with what you're doing, and you know the books you're putting out. Um, you can keep up with me. Uh, the only social media I do right now is Twitter because I am lazy and I do not have time for anything. <laughs> so I'm at, uh, at brain versus book on Twitter. I also do a blog about books, which you might guess from my Twitter handle, which is mm -hmm. at brain versus book.com. <laughs> and, uh, I usually write about 
I'm, on my blog, I only write about books that I'm interested in and that I liked reading. And on Twitter, I write about all the books that I translate and and also random translation problems and things like that. So if that's your jam, <laughs> come find me. Definitely. You write about a ton of interesting stuff on your blog in particular, like stuff that isn't even translated even. Oh. It's super interesting to learn about. Oh, thanks. Yeah, I just read a lot of books and I want to talk about them. So I just <laughs> decided to just write about them. <laughs> <laughs> and you've kept up at this battle for over nine years you think is it that long oh wow <laughs> i gotta find a new hobby <laughs> <laughs> um but no yeah uh, like lum said we really want to thank you for coming on with that all being said lum i think it's time for us to end the show yeah let's head on a boat in our own and float off into the sky <laughs> Thanks once again to Jocelyn for coming on the show to talk Arjuns with Dusk with us. I mean, as we mentioned on the show, there's so much to say about the series despite its short run. Like, I took like 17 pages of notes. We definitely did not cut to all of them in our <laughs> one and a half hour podcast. But I think we touched on some of the key points of what makes the series special and what this makes the series so resonant and emotionally powerful. And it was also just awesome to talk with Jocelyn about, you know, her career history, her history working in the industry her journey and you know her insights in the world of translation so that was a great conversation and hopefully we can have more like them in the future and hopefully we can also talk about more of you Kamatani's works and even maybe do another deep dive on our dreams of dust itself like in the future because i think there's definitely a lot more to say about their work but speaking of that brings us to our community shout outs for this episode for the month of November, I'll do my best to include as many shoutouts related to LGBTQ manga or by queer creators as possible, though I'll still include some bonus stuff from other folks I really want to mention as well. This time, though, I have a lot of our dreams at us related shoutouts for you guys to further immerse yourselves in the series, learning more about it and its creator, Yuki Kamatani. For podcasts, you definitely gotta check out both Queering the Guillotine and Tonochoka's multi-part reviews of Our Dreams at Dust. They offer great perspectives on the series and how its events resonated with them, with Tomochoko's podcast making sure to include additional perspectives for other career experiences, as well as an expert on comic work, Carlene from the Coins Cats blog. Both The Queering, The Guillotine, and Tomochoko are among my favorite queer manga-focused podcasts by queer hosts and offer great perspectives on the series they cover, and you should really check them out. 
If you can, you should particularly support Tomochoko's Patreon to help them get to their next tier goal, which would allow them to hire their freaking contributor, Mercedes Lewis, as a full-time editor of the show. I really like Mercedes' reviews on her personal blog and anime feminist and appearances on Tomochoko, and it would be great for them to include her as part of the team officially to help them continue making more great podcasts. On the subject of other great podcasts, though, Simply Gene Ray's Read Like the Left podcast on Yuki Kamatani is also a great listen for a comprehensive overview of their works as well. G and Ray are big fans of Kamatani and provide a lot of passionate insights and analysis on their team's storytelling. Similarly, Caroline from Coherent Cats wrote a great profile of Yuki Kamatani for anime feminists, exploring their works and how themes of gender, sexuality, and identity are explored through them developing over their decade-long career and culminating in the perspectives found in our dreams of us. It's a great insight into Kamatani as a creator and how the themes they've explored across their works have developed over time. Anime Feminist also has another great piece on our dreams of dusk specifically from Danny M, who looked at the found family themes of the story and its exploration emphasis on the importance of an intergenerational queer community and how remarkable the variety of experiences represented in our dream of dusk really is. Anime Feminists also did their own Chatty F podcast on the series, chatting about the series' themes and characters, providing additional insights into the setting of the story and nuances of the language used in it, which we also touched upon a bit in our discussion. Like I said before, there's so much depth to our dreams of us that we couldn't possibly unpack it all in our podcast, so I heartily recommend everyone check out these fun podcasts and tutorials for even more comprehensive discussions and thoughts on the series. Those were my Our Dreams of Death specific shoutouts slash further reading and listening lists for this time, but I do have some straight shoutouts of other folks on other topics I want to share too. First, I want to recommend, of course, Jocelyn's blog, Brain Versus Book. We brought it up at the podcast, but she's been running it for a decade now and has reviewed a ton of great Japanese books and manga, many of them niche and adult titles, including a recent review of Kamome Shirahama's Ineal and Juwaila, her Insights and spotlights of manga are great and provide a cool overview of often overlooked titles, many of which are untranslated. Speaking of great insights from an industry veteran, I also really enjoyed Kadangelai's latest interview with Jason Thompson about his experiences working on Shaman King. Katanja is, of course, re-releasing Shaman King, and it was awesome to hear Jason's thoughts and experiences as the original editor of the series for his, and what he really loves about it and his favorite memories working on it, including some of his favorite censorship details and localization liberties. I really love Jason's perspectives on manga, and it was great to hear him share his thoughts on Shaman King, which I know is a personal favorite of his. Speaking of supernatural-type shounen action series, Demon Slayer is a spiritual successor to Shaman King in many ways, and currently slaying the box office with a Mugen film out in theaters right now. Our good friends from the Demon Slayer podcast interviewed Daryl Harding, a correspondent for Crunchyroll Living in Japan, on his thoughts on the film and the culture surrounding Demon Slayer as a whole. Daryl provided great insights on how the theater culture are difference between Japan and the U.S., the context of Demon Slayer's record-breaking milestones, and just how unprecedented a phenomenon it is right now in Japan. It was a great interview that provided an intriguing perspective on the film, as well as the possible future of Demon Slayer as an anime franchise. Daryl also wrote a great review of the film and a steering experience for Crunchyroll and not only that as well. Speaking of the DSP crew, I gotta shout out our pal Sakaki and his translation of the second half of the Mungo Takahashi Kenjiro Hata Kumano Mana interview. The interview was a light to read because Hata and Kumano Mana are huge fanboys of Takahashi and just shared experiences reading her manga as kids and the moments from it that impacted them, like the iconic scene in where Akane's hair got cut in Ranma half. 
Kata also boldly asked a question on everyone's mind. Uh, who did Sishomu shag up with? And Takahashi's response is delightfully flippant and so on brand for her. I love it. Kata and Kumanamara also share their insights on their work as well. But you know me and my love for Takahashi. So I really appreciate the insights. Not on her work in this interview in particular, but overall, it is a really great group interview with some great mangaka. Talking about some great series with a great translation by a great friend. Thanks, Akaki. Speaking of Yashihime, though, I also want to shout out Gaijin Goomba's video on the yokai folklore in Yashihime, specifically in the first episode. Goomba is an expert on yokai stuff and provides some really great analysis and speculation on how the yokai shown in the series, like Mysterious Aldi and Roothead, are based on actual Japanese yokai and describes how Nukutagashi usually likes to put her own spin on yokai, mixing and matching different creatures and modernizing them in unique ways. So learning the history behind the yokai in the show provides some great food for thought when speculating about what the role in the story is going to be in the future, perhaps. And I hope Goomba continues to analyze more yokai in the show going forward. For more Yashihime chat, though, I also want to recommend a relatively new podcast I started listening to recently, Fun Untitled. It's a podcast hosted by two sisters, Annie and Minty, where they just chat about the anime they like, which includes weekly reviews of new Yashikimi episodes. I've really enjoyed their impressions and speculation of the show so far, and most of all, I've really enjoyed their banner. They have really snappy, playful conversations that bounce off each other really well, which makes their podcasts a lot of fun to listen to. Definitely check them out for more Yashikimi impressions, as well as reviews of other anime they love, like Demon Slayer and Naruto. Finally, the last shout-out I want to mention this time is a podcast about the first. That's right, the last shout-out, it's the first. Loop on the first, that is. Loop on the first recently screened in U.S. theaters, and the Australian-based Asinine Loop on podcast released a podcast reviewing the movie to coincide. It was a cool discussion, because they had two friends who weren't really experienced with Loop on watched the film, and it was great just hearing their thoughts and impressions of the characters based on it. They also did a great job putting the first in context of the franchise and how it relates to other Loop on media. And its potential international appearance in terms of its storytelling content, including some of its more loaded subject matter. It's a great overview and review of the film. Mostly spoiler-free, so definitely listen to it regardless of whether you've seen the film, as we anticipate its eventual release on home video and digital this December. And also, we've got our own app movie review of the first that we'll hopefully be putting out soon as well, so look forward to that too. But that about does it for community shoutouts this time. There's a lot of great stuff here to enrich your knowledge on a variety of subjects and just entertain the heck out of you, so please check them out. But with all these said and all the way, I think the sun is setting on this podcast and dusk is setting in. So I think it's time to close out the show and head off to Dreamland. Yep, and uh, I guess the only thing we should uh, we should say before we go is uh, look forward to the rest of... Uh, LGBT Thanksgiving. Yeah. And uh I I mean look, if if you're not already a patron of ours on Patreon, then like get ready get ready for some cool podcasts. But yeah, I I, I think we can end the show there. But actually before we do, we should uh talk about our stuff, starting with you, Lum. Where can the good people find you? You can find me at Lumamiyasha on Twitter as Lumamiyasha, variety places like Animation Revelation and Analyst, Rebel Days of Lumamiyasha, that's where you can find me. You can also read my reviews on on-com.com. We've got a lot of books coming in, a lot of reviews going out, so definitely look forward to more on there. And if you like the art I do for the show, the podcast thumbnails and whatnot, you can check out my art on my Instagram, SidArtWorks. All right. And as for me, I'm Colton. You can find me on Twitter at SniperKing323. I also produce a few other podcasts besides this one, which you can find links to 
at my personal blog at coltoncorner.wordpress.com. I have a page dedicated to whatever podcast I'm doing at the moment. And uh, yeah, if, if you if you if you like Manga Mavericks and you're interested in anything else I do, that's basically where you can find all my stuff. But I guess as for everything else, you could find every episode of Manga Mavericks at allcomic.com is where we post every episode first, unless you are a patron of ours at patreon.com slash manga mavericks, where at the $2 tier, you can listen to some of the podcasts we have coming up on our Patreon already. Because at the $2 tier, you get access to uh, early editions of select podcasts before we put them up on the main feed, if we have them uh, edited early enough. And yeah, uh, that's basically the best way to listen to some of at least some of our podcast episodes early. Uh, or if you want some, uh, if, if you want some newer content, uh, you want to sign up for a five dollar tier, uh, where basically we upload one bonus podcast at the end of every month. Uh, right now, we are doing a podcast mini series known as the Manga Mavericks Book Club that we're uploading an episode of every month, where uh, we talk about different manga that we may have talked about on the Manga Mavericks podcast proper, uh, but we're kind of going a little more in depth with uh, ideally volume by volume. Right now, we are talking about Saint Seiya, uh, the original Saint Seiya manga from Masabi Kuramata. I am talking about that with my friend Doctor from the Ask Backwards Anime podcast. It's basically our first time reading through the series. By the time this is out, uh, hopefully soon you can expect our next episode talking about uh, volumes 13 and 14. It's been real fun. Like, if you like Saint Seiya and you want to hear our thoughts on it, please go listen to it. And so, yeah, again, that's at the $5 tier at patreon.com slash manga mavericks. Really the best place you can support us and everything we do here. We really appreciate any support we can get. As for everything else, you could follow us on facebook.com slash all.comic or on twitter.com slash allcomic underscore. But if you want to follow Manga Mavericks uh, specifically, uh, you want to follow us on Twitter at manga underscore Mavericks or at Tumblr at mangamavericks.tumblr.com for all the latest updates on the podcast. Uh, subscribe to our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash manga Mavericks where we have different excerpts of the podcast uh, waiting for you to watch. And sometimes even some exclusive content every once in a while. Again, that's at youtube.com slash manga mavericks. Email us anything at manga mavericks at gmail.com. Uh, what do you think about our dreams at dusk and uh, Yuki Kamatani's works? Are you reading anything right now you want to tell us about? Or uh, is there any manga that you want us to read on and talk about on the show? Basically, email us anything about manga, the podcast, or whatever, and we'll read it on the show. We love getting emails. Again, email us at manga mavericks at gmail.com. But the most important thing, guys, is that you subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts or basically wherever you listen to podcasts. We're basically everywhere. But especially on Apple Podcasts, if you rate and review us, it really helps the visibility of our show, helps us get out to more listeners. And just in general, we we appreciate any feedback we get on the podcast. So, uh, so if you have the time, go do that. We love it when you do that. And yeah, that's really going to be about it for the show. But I guess until next time, uh, this has been episode 139 of the podcast. And we will see you guys next time for episode 140. Bye, guys. Sayonara and sweet dreams. <laughs>